If this life is driving you to drink, you sitting around wondering just what to think. Well, I got some consolation. I'll give it to you if I might. You know I don't worry about a thing, 'cause I know nothing's gonna be alright. Hello, I'm Melly May O'Hagan, and I'm Owen Jones, and this is Agitpod. Woo! Exciting. I would say our fortnightly podcast, but we tend to do it just whenever we want, just don't we? Just when we can be bothered. Yeah. And you're at the moment you're a haggard mess, aren't you? I am very ill at the moment. I've been very ill. Biological weapon going to infect am, everyone I'm around. I am walking biological weapons. Don't piss me off because I will be round your house. It's some sort of stomach bug. Sounds really unpleasant. Yeah, anyway, thanks. thanks. <laughs> Great. I'm glad everybody. Uh, please write that down, everyone. Um, just imagine that Ellie hunched over. Anyway, we're <laughs> delighted to have. I'd say one of our. I'm just gonna just gonna say it. One of our heroes, actually. Yes, absolute hero. Go on, introduce her. It is Naomi Klein. Woo! I'm so happy to be with both of you, and I think you guys are heroes. Oh, stop it! Oh, honestly, it's too much. We deal out the compliments; you just take them. That's <laughs> yeah. the rules. If you want to yeah. do it the other way around, get your own podcast. Although I am <laughs> gonna like play that to everyone I know and be like, "That's Naomi Klein. Just call me a hero. That's no big deal." <laughs> That'll be your. Why ring- bring it up? It's no big deal. That'll saying. be your ringtone at the end of this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so, Naomi, welcome. Where Thank do we you. begin? Well, we've only got about 20 minutes. We better make this pretty... pretty I was looking forward to doing this podcast, um, but I did... I, I Originally, we were supposed to do it at your apartment, and we were all going to have wine and all that, and it was going to be really nice. Sophisticated. And now we're hunched. It's the morning. We're exhausted. <laughs> you had a bike accident. You're Not- sick, Ellie. I have the worst allergies, and we're in this really sterile little room. If you're after some sort of sucks. chunk of rainbow in this podcast, <laughs> yeah. you're going to be very disappointed. If you want a metaphor, for how uh, politics are at the moment consider this the uh... no things are good here <laughs> are they in the uk well they're better you know it's interesting when i was when i was writing this book um i have three editors that i work with um i have my 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 primary editor is is a woman named louise dennis who i've been working with since i wrote no logo and she's a brilliant publishing legend um and she lives in toronto and and we we worked very very closely she she actually had to move into my house pre- pretty much um because we had to edit it in person because we had so little time we couldn't back and forth we had to just agree right then and there and then sign off you know but i've i also work with helen conford here at Penguin, and I've been working with her since the Shock Doctrine. I was working with Anthony Arnov at Haymarket in the U.S., and so they would give their editorial comments to Louise, and we would discuss them. And it was interesting because it was before the election, and Anthony's a revolutionary. You know, he runs radical socialist press, so he was just like full on with revolution. And and um, Louise and I were pretty much on the same page, but Helen kept sort of sending us these cautionary notes because things were so grim here. And the book is ultimately you know, optimistic in the end about the possibility of political change. And I think she wasn't quite feeling it. That's no isn't enough, by the way, order it now. (laughs) Um, But it was, it's just interesting because the mood here has changed so much, even since I was writing Mm -hmm. this book, that's just come out a few weeks ago, right? Uh, Since the election. And, and uh, it seemed like the labor was going to be wiped out. Um, And the message that I have in this book is like, if we put forward a positive agenda, 
we actually can win. We can capture people's imagination. We can't just run against what we don't like. We have to put forward our, our, our own vision. Because the left's often been very defensive, hasn't it? If, it, it? You know, in the end, because the end of the Cold War, uh, the way it was spun, the end of history, the triumphalism, mm-hmm. the form of globalisation we've got, the left was kind of stop the cut, stop privatisation, yeah. stop the world around again. Stop hurting off, me, yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than <laughs> here's our positive, inspiring vision of what sort of country and world we can build. And because I think there was a lot of internalized shame about left wing ideas. Um, And so we may have had the courage to say no to this to the latest round of of attacks, but to really say, let's completely reverse it. um, That has been a slow, a slow process. And it has been led, I think, very much by people of your generation, not mine, who didn't have the full dose of ideological indoctrination. Mm. So, you know, you think about the student movement in Chile. What, what is it now? I guess almost 10 years ago, mm. right? And having the boldness to say, not don't raise the tuition, which is what, you know, what, what, what my generation was saying, but get rid of tuition, mm. you know? And, and we had in Quebec, the student movement doing the same. That was a real shift of mm. putting forward actually a, a bold plan of what we want. And I think they're... You know, there are movements that have always kept that kind of utopian imagination alive, like many criminal justice activists in the United States um, have kept alive the, a vision of pris- prison abolition, mm. saying, oh, yeah, right now we are fighting against police shooting black people, but ultimately our vision is much more radical than mm. that, right? Um, and, uh, and and so, but it, but it was, it was not this sort of central project of the left that I think internalized the idea that there was something wrong with our ideas. It's really interesting that you say that because um, I've talked a lot about this since the election. I've been like invited on various things to talk about why Corbyn did so well. And I think that over the last couple of years since he was elected leader, anyone who's associated with him, and this is definitely something that me and Owen have experienced firsthand, you were made to feel like a crank and you were made to feel like a loon and like you didn't really deserve your voice because you're you're a crackpot. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened in the campaign is that which supporting Corbyn went from being a source of shame to something that people kind of wore as a badge of defiance. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it was because the manifesto was so good that um, it allowed people to kind of say, yeah, I do support this, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wonder if maybe that people have just got to such a stage with neoliberalism where they just can't take it anymore, that they're just angry now and they will be defiant and they will say, no, I want this other thing and I'm not, I'm not ashamed to demand it. I kind of wonder if maybe that's a change over the last 10 years or so. Well, I mean, when I, I thought it was really amazing that a manifesto, that a platform could play that role in this era of celebrity politics, Mm. where so much of it is about Mm. the leader, about the marketing around that leader. Um, And I think what seems to matter most is just a trusted carrier for the policies, right? And I think Bernie Sanders played a similar role where, um, you know, it was less about, you know, him as a speaker and so much more about the ideas and how they were resonating with people. And there was that same idea at the beginning of the Sanders campaign that you are anybody who would support a self-described democratic socialist in the United States mm. was was a crank. Um, but no, I certainly noticed, 
you know, I've spent the past week talking to your media because <laughs> um, I'm a mentor. Enjoy, and I enjoy that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I never enjoy it. And every time I do it, I say I'm never going back to the country doing this why, again. Just so, why, is our, why is our media so uniquely awful? Go, I, mean, I we, mean, it really is. Um, it really is bizarre. I mean, how sort of abusive it is um, <laughs> that and that people put up with it. Mm. Um, it's like an important trial, isn't it? But by some very unpleasant right wing. Some very posh minutes. people. Yeah. Well, I hardly think so. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, mm. but I, but I I mean not to say it's been pleasant this time. I would definitely not go that far. <laughs> but it has. There has been a, a change in tone that I attribute to just this whole expert class getting it so spectacularly wrong on Corbyn that it's kind of like, well, you know, we don't want to be out of step with forty percent of the country. Like that's not a good look um, for the BBC. And 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 so, <clears throat> well, I wouldn't say there's been you know, curiosity or anything cr- crazy like that. Um, but, there- <laughs> <laughs> but there has been a slight diminishment of just open disdain. <laughs> well, you know, but we'll take victories where we find them. What I, um, was true, because I always said this, the, the people who would, uh, who would uh, take with UKIP supporters, what makes them tick? They wouldn't even extend that analytic curiosity to Corbyn supporters, which is astonishing. But what I think, let's see what you think about this. In the late 1970s, the post-war consensus in Britain just began to fall apart um, and that was of uh, supposed to be of strong trade unions collectivism a big role for the state public ownership higher taxes on the rich and what summed that up in the narrative of of the right was the so-called winter discontent when there was a wave of public sector strikes which seemed to sum up this kind of you know, the demonology of the right of mm-hmm. the, all the horrors of statism and right. strong unions this time around i think grenfell tower um, and the dozens of working class people who needlessly burned to death in the richest borough in London. And it's told the story of deregulation, of, of, of the lack of working class power, of, of, of profit before people. I think it sums up that at the moment, the neoliberal consensus, for want of a slightly sexier term, it, of deregulation, privatisation, all the rest of it, is falling to pieces in yeah. Britain. And that's what's yeah. happening. Well, and, and there is a history, right, of, of, of these tremendous shocks to this to to societies where you know kind of a mirror is held up and Mm. you really see where the system leads right and 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 those moments being catalysts for progressive political change right and this is why um actually why the right in my opinion developed the whole strategy of the shock doctrine of of moving into moments of crisis very, very rapidly with a radical right-wing agenda. Mm. It was all in response to the New Deal and the fact that the 1929 market crash was metabolized as a failure of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And the left, which at that moment had a utopian imagination, had a bold plan, and was able to move into that space and go, this is what we want now. We want massive investments in the public sphere. We want social security. We want, you know, we, we, we want to reduce working hours, all of that, right? And so we had, uh, you know, not to idealize the New Deal because many workers were left out, right. uh, particularly black workers, women, women's work was excluded. Um, but much of the social safety net was woven in in those short years, right? And another moment of, of shock like that was the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire um, mm. in, I believe, 1914 in New York City, where um, where women garment workers, overwhelmingly uh, immigrant workers, were were burned in their workplaces because of a failure of regulation, of, of the kinds of abuses that we saw in Grenfell Tower. And that became 
a catalyst for a wave of strikes and organization mm -hmm. and poli bold policy responses, right? And I go through it actually in the book as you know a, a, an example of how a shock can change the world. Um, and I, I believe that Grenfell Tower it could be a moment like that because what it requires is not just the shock, but the existence of organized social movements with a vision for the world they want. That's why Katrina wasn't that shock, even mm -hmm. though we had the analysis mm -hmm. of, of this is like when Katrina happened uh, in 2005, we did say this is a result of system failure. Mm -hmm. This is the result of sy systematic neglect of the public sphere, the levees that should have protected New Orleans um, gave way. And there was, as with Grenfell, a long paper trail of warnings, fix the levees, fix the levees. Mm -hmm. They didn't do it, right? So it's not as if they weren't warned just as they had been warned um, here in London. And um, and it was also just that moment of like, where's the state? Oh yeah, we dismantled it, right? And so you know, FEMA, the agency that is supposed to respond to disasters, couldn't seem to find New Orleans for five days. People left on their rooftops, left in 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 uh, in, in the Superdome for days on end, and then vilified. So you had systemic racism layered on top of it, on top of all of these decisions about who is neglected, who is abandoned, this hierarchy of life, right? That is based on. On, on, on income that is based on race and this whole toxic cocktail. So we had the diagnosis. I just want to be really clear about this. The diagnosis was there. But what there wasn't was the boldness to say, and we know the world we want instead, right? And so it's that combination that is so powerful. And that's why I think this moment in the UK is potentially transformational because you've just come out of this election where the manifesto led, where that vision of the world led and it captured mm -hmm. people's imagination. Mm -hmm. And now you have this profound catastrophe um, which shows everybody what the true human costs of this are, right? So, I mean, we don't know what's gonna come at this moment, but it isn't only about the UK. I mean, all eyes are, are on this. So many people are watching this around the world. Um, let's talk about your book. Because me and Owen were actually, we actually had dinner with you, didn't we, on the day of Trump's inauguration? Uh, yeah. We were actually in Washington for it. It wasn't some sort of kind of posh date, was it? It makes it like no, we were just we like, a like a takeaway. Like like we went for empanadas, didn't we? It was Ooh. actually, I think it was um, Salvadoran food. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was tasty. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, carry on. Anyway, yeah, no, that's <laughs> Details are important. Uh, but we'd been at the inauguration that day, and, uh, and it was. I remember sort of someone asking me what it was like and I was like, it wasn't really that interesting. It was kind of like being on a film set and you sort of felt like the real experience was watching it on TV. Whereas when you were actually in the inauguration, it was just kind of like being an extra on a big film set. And In the protest or in the actual inauguration? In the actual inauguration. And it kind of made me think, you know, that I was kind of freaked out by how easily Trump sort of fitted into that world. You know, I thought that it would, he would look really incongruous, this kind of reality TV host, but with all of the sort of nonsense, pomp and circumstance mm -hmm. and the kind of real showiness of it, he actually fitted in fairly well. And that's kind of something that you talk about in your book, isn't it, about how he's like, not really like a, a real person, but this kind of sort of TV president or this kind of ca character almost that sort of embodies... Everything, stuff. things taken to that logical conclusion of the system. Yeah. 
And he, yeah, I mean, one does have a sense that for him, the White House serves primarily as a film set, right? As a place to have your picture taken, looking out the window, looking presidential, and then using that to market your brand to, you know, sell more golf memberships, <laughs> memberships at your golf resort and increase the fees at Mar-a-Lago, you know, because his brand is, is power and wealth. And there's no better way to project that than to have a picture of you in the Oval Office. And he, he doesn't want to live there. And his wife certainly doesn't want to live there. He wants to live in the Winter White House, mm-hmm. um, which is this fully private White House, which is itself like more, even more like a film set because there's a live studio audience, the members members of Mar-a-Lago, so they are literally performing for these their well-heeled studio audience who are watching them launch missile strikes on Syria and posting on Facebook about how cool oh, it is. God. I mean, the whole thing is incredibly mm. fucked up, which is why. I, you know, call that chapter the Mar-a-Lago Hunger Games because I think, you know, when I when we talk about it as a television show, it can sound dismissive and mm. like mm. we're underplaying the fact that there are real people dying in this show. Mm. But that's also part of a sort of a classic trope of reality television. You think about the Hunger Games, like everyone dies, right, um, in the show. And the idea of reality show as a genuine blood sport is... Um, kind of the logical conclusion of the system we're in. And what's really terrifying about that is that the ultimate way to have like a blockbuster ratings, reality TV show blood sport is to launch a full-fledged war, right? And we've already seen the kind of encouragement that Trump has gotten for launching missiles. And this is when he, the, the you know, cable news in, in the US finally started treating him with respect. Mm-hmm. Um, God, it's just liberals, isn't it? They're all like, no, Trump is the worst. And then he just bombs someone and they're like, well, that's very presidential. <laughs> yeah, actually, they said it was beautiful. Um, mm. Brian Williams <laughs> on MSNBC said that it was beautiful as he was watching the, the missiles drop. I mean, and then he quoted Leonard Cohen, which really pissed me off. Yeah, do not take the Lord's name in vain, Brian Williams. Yeah, he said it reminded him of a Leonard Cohen lyric, we are blinded by the beauty of our weapons. And it's like, you really don't understand that song? (laughs) (laughs) And it was a painful moment. Well, he was a famous sort of US foreign policy hawk. Yeah, he was always, his songs were inciting uh, militarism. Uh, That's what we've uh, we've learned from that. So quickly... Because you've got to go, Naomi. You've got you've got things to do. You've got you've got to save I've the world. I've got more British journalists to be insulted uh, by. Lucky old you. Well, at least you're. Well, same you've got, here. You've got Let's an, just enclave. <laughs> I wasn't counting you guys. Um, <laughs> are we gonna Are we gonna win and live happily ever after? Look, we can see now. I, I suppose every year it just shows. You know, the illusion of every year is the way things are now. The way things will always be. Often. So if we look back a year ago in this country, we'd had a EU referendum, which was all about. Uh, immigrants. It was full of xenophobia. You had uh, people from minority backgrounds being being abused on the streets of this country. It felt like there was ve- a very bleak future for progressive politics, and now mm-hmm. it's all changed. So it does show, yeah. doesn't it? You know, it, it is shows all things point. can tip very quickly. The scary thing is they can tip in either direction, right? Because we are in this really malleable moment because there is a vacuum at the center of where where neoliberal ideology used to exist, right? So neoliberalism still exists, but the ideological project, the faith in the project is totally shattered, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even while I've been in the UK for one week, I've watched the Tories come out in favor of, you know, free tuition, right? And, and, and this debate about whether or not they're going to, uh, you know, whether austerity is dead, whether mm. they're going to lift the public finally, sector, pay exactly, yeah. um, pay public sector workers uh, more. 
so I mean, when the Tories, um, you know, the party of Thatcher loses faith in in uh, in, in in austerity, and you know, you 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 have this extraordinary thing where. Um, you know, the, the first media appearance I did, I was on the Mar show, um, and I was on, I'm going to forget his name, but a guy from The Telegraph. It's very forgettable. Tim, oh, Tim, Tim Stanley. Tim Stanley. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what are you doing? Owen you know, is like, just in the fetal position, just for listening. We, well, have, really we, have, we have history. To watch his dynamic with, there was a, a Tory MP there, Heidi... Um, Allen? Yeah. Yeah. And she was... Uh, you know, she's been one of the one of the MPs in the in the party that has been kind of pushing them to the left, right? Because understanding that if they don't move, if they don't sort of poach some of the Labour's policies, they you know they're they're very vulnerable. They will lose their seats. I guess that's what's motivating it. But he was very irate and saying like, "I will defend Tory policy if the Tories won't." Right? I mean, so this is a real moment here, and. Um, but but yeah, the scary part of it is that it can. It's not only progressives. It's not only a socialist democratic vision that can enter into this vacuum. It's also very very dangerous, hateful right wing ideas that can enter into it. Xenophobic, white supremacist. Um, so it's it's this race against time. You know whether we can get our act together, <laughs> um, and and. and and the stakes have never been higher. I mean, we were just talking about this, Owen, and, you know, we, we have the stakes of the rising far right, and we have the climate stakes. We have the fact that we're up against it on the climate clock if we are going to have any hope at all of averting catastrophic climate change. We need to seize the reins in the next, like, three years so that no but it's like there's i don't know how how much long like can we keep stretching the decade i mean in 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 this changes everything you know i call i i quoted climate scientists who called the decade we're in decade zero it's 2017 of decade zero and that why they call it decade zero is that if we don't get our emissions pointing in the right direction mm-hmm. in a serious way by the end of this decade the chance of keeping uh warming below two degrees celsius closes right so that doesn't mean we have to do everything in the next three years but we have to get off the road that we're on in the next three years um and and so you know we're on a deadline i mean we're all writers and i think we can all agree that deadlines can be helpful (laughs) (laughs) put the fear of god in you yeah i see them often as advisory so maybe don't necessarily stick to that one no mate you're an absolute hero legend thank you very much everyone buy a book now do draw whatever you're doing just buy, buy several copies and also buy friends. this changes everything as well because i know that we're here to promote your most recent book but this changes everything is also incredible and i read it as well and didn't sleep for a week so so it'll destroy your life recommendation. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, 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 what i would say is just forget books and um just keep doing what you're doing because i know the people who listen to this podcast were really at the heart of this um, incredible election. That, they knocked on a lot of doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And and that you know both of you have played this tremendous role. This is having a huge impact in this country, but it's also showing people outside um, outside the UK that if you do put forward a bold vision, we really can change things. And that's something that that we really need to understand in North America right now, in the US and in Canada, where people are blinded by our prime minister's socks mm. and thinks that think that maybe that's they are snazzy socks. They are. Well, that was Naomi Klein, who now has to rush off to yet another interview. She just put her superhero cape on. And just dashed away. God, I just love her so much. All right. She's just so great. Listen okay. to us. 
Pathetic, isn't it? Absolutely pathetic. She shameless. You might she... even say shameless. Um, we will be back soon. I mean, if we start going, oh, a fortnightly podcast back in two weeks, well, I don't know if we will. We might be back next week. So I don't I mean, know who anymore. Knows? Who knows? We're just, you know, just playing it fast and loose. Yeah, that's 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 how, that's how we roll. It's so like it's like it. a UK Brexit policy, isn't it? Anything goes. <laughs> who yeah. knows what will come? Yeah, we kind of mirror the chaos enveloping the Conservative Party. Yep, that's our our editorial strategy at Agitpod. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for listening. As Naomi suggests, fight the power. Well, that's me interpreting what she said. But go and, you know, organise. There could be an election. We don't know when. I might say that at the end of the podcast. Who knows when an election will happen? So we've got to go out, knock on doors, canvas. I'm going to be out campaigning against Ian Duncan Smith and Boris Johnson. We're going to get rid of them. I'll probably come. Yeah. So it'll be fun. You should come with us. We'll get a tan, do some yeah. exercise, take on the Tories. Uh, so we will speak to you next time. All right. Bye. Bye. But I don't worry about a thing because I know nothing's going to be all right.